welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Jose Estigarraga, Global Head of Reed Smith's International Arbitration Practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights, and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the latest edition of of our series called Arbitral Insights, where we have informal conversations with some leading lights in the world of international arbitration. I am delighted to be doing this podcast with one of my personal heroes, a great mentor of mine, and a mentor to so many others in the world of international arbitration, and indeed the law. And I have the pleasure of speaking with Justice B.N. Sri Krishna, who is uh, a former Indian Supreme Court judge, uh, a very eminent jurist, and now a very well-regarded and highly in-demand arbitrator. So welcome, Justice Sri Krishna. Thank you. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation because even though I've known you for so long and I, and I, and I dream of emulating you, even in some respects, uh, I've never had a conversation with you where I can ask you some of the questions I'm going to be asking you today. I've had the privilege of co-chairing a conference with you of being a panelist with you on other topics in the world of international arbitration. But this is the first time that we've had this sort of conversation. So I'm much looking forward to it. Now, one of the things that I'm sure so many of our listeners will be very interested in knowing is what inspired you to become a lawyer? Welcome. That is a book published in India called The Reluctant Prime Minister. Have you read that? No. No, I haven't actually. I must get a copy of that. I'm somewhat of a reluctant uh, lawyer. <laughs> the reason is this. Uh, I, my father was a lawyer. He was a very senior, fairly senior lawyer in the practicing in the Supreme Court, in the Bombay High Court and other courts. I was intent on not becoming a lawyer. My father kept on insisting that I join the administrative service and somehow I was not interested in becoming a pen pusher. I was more into, you know, the the fad in those days was nuclear science. Nehru had come up with this Atomic Energy Commission and we were all bright-eyed about that. I joined science stream. I passed my bachelor's. I applied for master's in science and I wanted to specialize in either nuclear science or quantum uh, theory or something of the sort. And then there was a break. Uh, there was some vacation and we were having a conversation at dinner time. And uh, my father said a rem- made a remark which uh, didn't go well with me. He said, you can't be a good lawyer unless you have some special uh, intellectual prowess or something of that sort. And I can never resist a challenge. So I told him, if you can be a good lawyer, you can be a better lawyer. So he said, son, it's easy to talk, but it's very difficult to show in practice. I said, very good. Next day, I went and applied to the law college, got admitted. And my Fantastic. Poor, my poor professor in the Institute of Science kept waiting for me to fill the, pay the term fees. And the day of the term fees came and passed. He called me up frantically and said, hey, are you having financial difficulties? I'll pay your first term fees. Please come. <laughs> I said, no, sir, thank you. <laughs> and no, sir, thank you. I'll come and explain to you what it is. And I got 
roundly fired by him saying that you're an idiot you're forsaking a good career for being a lawyer at least be a good lawyer <laughs> yeah. and then i must say frankly that the loss of the legal community was the gain of the scientific world as i always say well many you know many people would differ from with that i mean i think quite the opposite actually i don't know thank you for saying that but i don't know i always wondered well no it's a great story because uh, i suppose you know we sort of a number of us over the years sort of know that we want to be a lawyer from a very early stage i mean i personally didn't so i you know came into it a bit later in my life when i was about 18 19 i decided that's what i wanted to do but some people you know they honestly do know it from when they're younger which is uh, always fascinating in itself so you know one of the things that i mean your name is synonymous with so many things and you've had a very illustrious and glittering career in the law of that there's no doubt and the so cherry on the top of the cake was the fact that you sat as a supreme court judge for a number of years now i know it's very difficult justice shri krishna to in any way summarize um your time on the bench but perhaps you could share with our listeners some of your key reflections from your time as a supreme court judge because i think that would be particularly insightful the biggest advantage of being a supreme court judge is that you get hands on view of the law uh, in the different states you know india is a, state, a country of many states and some of the laws are quite di- different in fact i would say some of the 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 measuring uh, quanta are also different for example land measures different are different in different states so for a person who is from say bombay high court the land measure in kerala is different from the land measure in punjab and so are the state laws so it's it's a, a fascinating uh, array of uh, laws that you come across but once you get to the hang of knowing the the bottom line of the legal principle then you don't have any difficulty what well, doesn't matter you know tenancy laws you have a, a fair idea of what is the tenancy law in bombay so you know what the tenancy law in madras could be a more or less the same thing maybe that the 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 particulars differ the details may be different but then once that is true number one number two is you get to do a lot of constitutional matters those are the matters like you know like habeas corpus criminal matters for example when i was a, a judge at the bombay high court i did very few criminal matters and uh, one thing is some of the judges tend to avoid you know some particular branch of the law uh, i didn't do that for example um, i must thank my chief justice that he rotated me in all the um, different branches of law right from parsi matrimonial law to land laws to criminal law to tax laws all kinds of laws hindu law not to forget so sitting at the judge of the supreme court that gives you a broad vision of the entire law in the country and it also gives an advantage of looking at what the law in the different jurisdictions across the border are so i have had a brush with judges from different jurisdictions get to know what their viewpoint on a particular issue is what they think in their estimate the value of the judgments produced by the supreme court of india are and that was a great insight you know otherwise we tend to think that we are the great people it's only yeah, yeah. your reputation is what others think of you and not what you think of yourself so that's a great insight you know 
uh, of being able to look at a colleague from across the border and say, hey, how does it estimate our uh, codes to be? And that's quite enjoyable. And of course, the advantage of being in the Supreme Court is the, the best, the cream of the, the legal community is already there to put across things to you. And there is always healthy give and take at the bar. You brush, yeah. uh, you have uh, close brushes with some of the eminent counsel. You know, in fact, I have had eminent brushes with Palkiwala and down the line, everybody, including Soli Sarabji and Arifan. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you've seen all the top advocates in front of you. In fact, um, uh, both uh, Soli and Pali and Arifan were youngsters at the bar when I joined the bar. Of course, they're exactly 10 years older than me. And I was a callow young junior when I was there, there in the 30s mm. at Bombay Bar. And I also had the privilege of Palkiwala coming and arguing one matter in my matter, although he was very old at that time and almost uh, on the line of exit. So it gives you well experience, insight, and ability to identify the good and the bad. That that's what yeah. sum up my experience to be. Well, that's fascinating. And I think that last comment about being able to sort out the good and the bad, um, and also your comment about how you learned about different traditions, different viewpoints, different arguments, um, brings us very nicely, actually, to the next question that I wanted to ask you, which actually flows really nicely. Because obviously, when you stood down from the bench, because in India, there's a mandatory retirement age for Supreme Court judges. Um, you then have forged an incredibly, I mean, uh, there's no other way to describe it, an incredible career as as a top arbitrator. So I guess the next question I wanted to ask you was what first created your interest in the world of arbitration? Okay. Again, I say uh, I'm an accidental arbitrator. Honestly, (laughs) my view was that after retiring to the Supreme Court, I should perhaps uh, do some teaching in the law school or something like that. So when I attempted to do that in my old alma mater, the government law college, I was told. And in fact, I offered. And I said, hey, look, I don't need to be paid by you. I think the government is giving me a pension on retirement. I'll do it absolutely honorary. They hemmed and hawed. Of course, government being government everywhere. And I was told mm. that... Uh, they can't take uh, free service from me. They can't pay me because I'm much past the age of retirement. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, good luck to you. And the next alternative was to do what? Uh, I don't have a rose garden to tend to. So I had to. And I looked around and all my colleagues were doing arbitration. I said, okay, I jumped in. And there I am. I was stuck here for almost how many years now? More than 15, 16 years. Well, you know, like I say, and, you know, I, and I sincerely mean this because I've heard this also from many other colleagues of mine, both in India and outside India, that um, you've always been uh, an absolutely first class arbitrator and um, you've been a very human arbitrator. And I, and I mean that um, in the sense that you've always been able to. Um, command the respect of both of both sides and um, understand 
the human nature that goes into these cases, because I think that's a very important attribute. I'm sure all of us involved in arbitration would agree with that. So I wonder what your thoughts are on this. Um, How does being an arbitrator differ from being a judge? Because I suppose that's another thing that so many of our listeners would be very interested in knowing from you. See, the point is this. Being a judge is like uh, a racehorse with blinkers. You don't look at anything else. You look at the law. And whatever little you can do with equity and keep running along uh, within boundaries. Being an arbitrator gives you a little bit of flexibility because you're not tied down by, you know, details of Evidence Act and the procedural law and things like, you know, various things that you have in the court, the, the myriad things that you have which bind you down. That is one. The other thing is, I personally think that arbitration is and must be an alternative to litigation. You cannot do the same thing sitting as an arbitrator which you have done as a judge. Then there is no point in that. It's necessary to ensure that within the limits of uh, the arbitration law that you do justice to parties. And I personally believe that if you can encourage the parties at any stage of the arbitration to compose their differences and come work out a solution that is agreeable to both sides, that is the best arbitration that you can do. Being informal, being, you know, down to earth, I mean, I am using your own phrase, down to earth has helped me. And I believe that the only quality, honestly, I'm telling you, the only mm-hmm. quality that the litigants or the disputants look for is honesty of the arbitrator. Yes, a bit of law also helps, as they say. Now, you know, the unfortunately, yeah. arbitration has been overtaken by lawyers and judges, retired ones, of course. Why? The law doesn't require a lawyer to be an arbitrator. A, a, an ordinary man, as they call the, in, in England, you would call them the, the, the man on the Clapham omnibus. Yeah. <laughs> Although there is no such man in theory. Yeah, well, certainly no longer. No longer. So, he can be an arbitrator. Only thing is, he will not know how to avoid the pitfalls that the lawyers will, the trap that the lawyers set for you. But if you know the law and you have the same down-to-earth mentality, you can really handle arbitration. I mean, I was not trained to be an arbitrator. I just retired as a judge and just flitted into arbitration. And here I am, successful or otherwise, still in the field. Although right now I'm thinking of hanging up my gloves and saying that's enough. <laughs> well, well, well. Look, please don't hang up those gloves for a while yet. I think uh, you know that would be a huge loss to the world of arbitration, particularly um, I know in India. But you know, actually, this brings me to one thought. Actually, you know, a very good QC friend of mine who you actually know as well, but I'm not going to name him because it wouldn't be appropriate in this podcast. Um, he told me um, at a conference that you and I were, were both speaking at. That had you been an arbitrator based outside India, mm-hmm. you would have been one of that Premier League of arbitrators uh, that are often spoken about in the directories and in the legal press, the, the legal journals. Uh, and I think, you know, um, all I could do when he told me that was agree wholeheartedly, because I think one of the things about, um, as and of course, you know, you know this very well, arbitration has developed a lot more slowly in India 
right. as compared to other jurisdictions. And no doubt, as you know as well, and many of our listeners will know, the world of arbitration in India has been developing very fruitfully over the last few years. And we now see institutional arbitration getting a, a bigger foothold in India, legal reforms in India, in the world of arbitration, a very proactive Supreme Court in India, which is really pushing the virtues and the, you know, just the, the broader possibilities of arbitration, ensuring that the courts don't interfere too much. So I wonder what your thoughts would be as to a few things in your mind that would make arbitration a better process in India. If you could share your thoughts on that, please. You know, that, uh, I have always uh, said that the arbitration should be developed institutionally. And perhaps because I kept on saying this all the time, the government of India, when they set up the committee to reform arbitration law uh, about three, four years ago, uh, they gave me a mandate and said, institutionalization of arbitration law. And then I was chairing that committee. We came out with, unfortunately, what happens is, as they say, uh, there is many a slip betwixt the cup and the lip. We <laughs> with a lot of debate. We apply your mind. To, in sitting in a committee, I know how much of uh, work we did. And finally, we came out with some draft proposals as to what can be done in the law. By the time the, the, the 2019 um, bill was passed, there was, I mean, uh, it was as different as chalk is from cheese. That, that's the most unfortunate thing that I've noticed in all the commissions that I've added right from way back uh, when I retired. Now, institutionalization of arbitration does have its merits. In the sense, there is a time-bound principle. For example, I've been uh, doing a lot of in uh, institutionalized arbitration. Of course, in, in India, it was not there. I've done it, ICC, LI, what is that, L LISC, no? And the LCIA. LCIA, sorry, LCIA. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The other one, the Marine uh, Arbitration in London. All that I have yeah. done, mm -hmm. I found that they have a systematic, organized method of dealing with it. Now, in an arbitration, in an ad hoc system, that doesn't work that day. And because most of the persons who do ad hoc arbitrations are not trained to do this in India. That's why it gets bogged down in all kinds of trivialities mm -hmm. and, you know, too many technicalities which are unnecessary. After all, you have to do justice to the parties who have decided to forgo their right of litigation and come to you to resolve the matter faster. Now, if you do the same thing that you would have done as a judge in a formal court of law, then you are not doing justice to the subject. Therefore, one of the reasons is that Institutionalization helps you. You have a body of law. You have a body of admissible uh, rules by which you will play the game. It's not the, the general law of the land that applies. You have a rules, set of rules. Mm -hmm. You have a limitation, uh, sorry, a time limitation within which you have to act. And the administrative part of it is all that of the institution. I don't have to do any administration. I only do my job as an arbitrator. That is a great advantage. And one of the things, as I said, is be honest, avoid unnecessary technicalities. And that's all that is necessary in an arbitration. It's fabulous. Thank you. You know, these sorts of insights are just so valuable. And uh, I'm just so happy as we're talking through all of these things that these things are going to be heard by other people because I'm sure they've been thinking 
exactly the same things. Gautam, do you remember? Sorry for interrupting you. Oh, no, please. Gautam, do you remember the first time I met you was when you were in Singapore and had come to deliver a lecture to your... Uh, this, That's so right. Close audience <laughs> of your lawyers of your, of your firm. I said the same thing at that time, which is way yeah. back. I don't know how many years back. It must have been 15 years back. Yeah, yeah, no, I still remember. No, no, I, st- I still remember the time where you spoke at our Singapore office uh, arbitration seminar. It was our very first one. It was our inaugural one. And I remember you were staying around the corner at the Fullerton Hotel. Yeah, right. And uh, we had lunch together in advance of the event. And uh, I just remember, you know, it was, it was one of those lunches that uh, it's hard to forget because it wasn't the fact about what we were eating. It was what we were talking about. It was just the ability for me to talk to you and find out things about your perspectives on these sorts of points that were just so invaluable. You know, and that's, again, why also I'm very happy that we're having this discussion now. I guess, you know, one of the things that will be, uh, I know that we all um, have people that we find inspirational and we've always, and have helped us in the sense of given us the, how can I put it, the perspective on what to try to be like. Uh, as our you know, careers develop. And I wonder just if we dial back the years to when you were that young counsel that you spoke of a bit earlier in this podcast, when some other senior counsel were also in, you know, were working alongside you. Which lawyers were your, or other people, you know, lawyers and or non-lawyers, inspired you to forge the career that you've forged for yourself? Well, at that time, when I was when I just joined the bar, there were great stalwarts, you know, Sir Jamshedji Kanga, who is some kind of an institution, and all the lawyers who came out of his chamber who are now very very senior counsel, mm-hmm. like Palkhiwala, then Nariman, Soli Sarabji, and a host of other counsel. And uh, my father made it. My father took me around introduced me to a whole lot of them. And then, of course, I remember he introduced me to Mr. Chandrachur, who later on became the Chief Justice of India. He was a uh, common leader, I think, at that time. Mm-hmm. Introduced him and then made a part of a, a prediction. He said, here is one of our good uh, lawyers here. I'm telling you one of the days he will become a Chief Justice of India. And it came true. Yeah. It yeah. came true. And then uh, you be read about the great lawyers of the country, how they dealt with the issues. And that was really an inspiration for us as young lawyers to follow. And of course, the, in the chamber that we were taught by our seniors, that not only is it necessary to know the intricacies of law, but you also know the, the, the values in life. I remember reading somewhere, that uh, an American uh, lawyer had said that there are three C's, C's that the lawyers must always remember. One is the court, the client, and the most important is conscience. All the threes, I remember, we always had to remember and make sure that we acted in accordance with the principles that were taught to us. That 
that institution is no longer there you know the one of the disadvantages is if you do not have a chamber where it which is which is a tradition you lose that traditional aspect now today lawyering has become more or less commercial the question is in my days i don't even think even in my younger days i don't think i ever thought of what fee the client is going to bring to me my anxiety was how on earth i'm going to solve the problem that has been put on my table and as i told you i can't resist a challenge and every case was a challenge every case presented a challenge which we had to deal with looking back i would say that i have done in life nothing but meeting a series of challenges including the last one which i did in the data protection law that has been my career throughout thank you amit because you know i wanted to ask you sort of in closing a couple of things and you've already dealt with one of those things which was because i was going to ask you uh to uh, give us some tips for aspiring young lawyers but you've already done that in your last answer you know no, you know no doubt given because you you've got all the foresight uh, of the world but i wonder then just in closing just want to uh, just ask you one last thing if i may we're recording this podcast while you're in london uh, on holiday seeing your daughter and her family who live here in in london and you're here till the 10th of october so certainly you've got a lot more time to enjoy yourself uh, and uh, hopefully you will do so but uh, no well, tell us a little bit about apart from family what other interests do you have that excite you in your spare time and that you do in your spare time i do a lot of reading now though of course uh, because i'm having a slight difficulty in reading very small points i can't read these uh, paperbacks and things like that so i do a lot of reading on on screen actually yeah, on the computers and i read a whole lot of things about other than law you know for example i have interest great interest in indian classical music and even if i may say so at the risk of being immodest i'm fairly good in sanskrit and i read a lot of literature poetry of sanskrit i did a little bit a uh, little bit of study on uh, indian aesthetics and even got a postgraduate diploma on that and i'm wow. i'm fond of languages uh, the, my current hobby is learning japanese language well <laughs> you know that's a surprise i didn't realize that I, I, well look knowing you i mean you will master that language in no time there's no doubt about that You know the reason why I pick up jungle. I remember my brother is a, a neurologist in US, and he told me after sixty, your brain starts to slowly go downhill. <laughs> so he said you must keep your brain active, active by learning something that you have never done before. I said I'll do a lot of reading of Sanskrit. He said that's easy, just like going downhill. That's no good. You must do some uphill climbing. So he says learn something that you have never done. So I said okay, learn what language will I learn? Then I looked at Japanese. It has three scripts and four ways of writing. It says nothing can be more complicated. So I picked up Japanese. <laughs> Last two three years, I've been learning this. 
Well, I'm very impressed. I'm, I'm, I'm very, very impressed. In fact, the good thing about these conversations is that even though I've had the great privilege and honor of knowing you for so many years, every time I speak to you, I learn something new. And the Japanese language that you're learning, that point is completely new to me. Gautam, I don't know if you remember, Taiko was there on the guard to 21. Yes. And when I greeted her in Japanese, she was surprised. She showed to me an email and said, I'm surprised that you can speak in Japanese. <laughs> I'm sure she was absolutely delighted that you spoke to her in Japanese. Um, well, I've got to tell you, I've been, I've just had the greatest time in this podcast. I'm extremely grateful for your time today, Justice Sri Krishna. It really is a great honor and privilege to have done this podcast with you. This is a, a great, as I said, a great, a very great personal thing for me because you've been a great inspiration to me for many, many years. You're someone who I know I aspire to emulate in any ways that I can and that many other people also try to emulate in ways they can. So I just want to thank you very, very much for taking your time today to record this podcast with us and to share your thoughts on the various matters we've discussed and to wish you the, a great rest of your vacation. I mean, you've been generous enough to break your vacation, to take some time out from your vacation to record this podcast with me. I'm humbled by that because you could very easily have said no, but you said yes to me. So I'm very grateful. I look forward to seeing you before too long in the great city of Mumbai. Thank you. Thank you. See you soon. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email Joseas de Garaga at jia at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcasts on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at Reedsmith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.